Governor Holcomb makes a big splash on the one-month anniversary of his swearing-in. A House committee debates an abortion bill that has doctors both in support and against. That, plus the House Democratic Caucus unveils its road funding plan and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending February 10th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Governor Holcomb marked his first month in office with a series of sweeping declarations, some of which his predecessor never got around to. Uh, First, Holcomb announced his pardon of Keith Cooper, who was wrongly convicted of burglary two decades ago. He says he's convinced of Cooper's innocence, noting a victim and witness recanted, DNA evidence cleared Cooper, and the deputy prosecutor who convicted him raises no objection to the pardon. Governor Mike Pence never granted Cooper's pardon request. Holcomb issued an emergency disaster declaration for East Chicago as the Northwest Indiana community deals with a lead contamination crisis, a declaration Pence rejected before leaving office. And the governor terminated negotiations with an Ohio-based company over a 50-year lease of the state's cell towers. Pence had announced the deal last September, one that was supposed to yield the state $260 million and pay for bicentennial projects. But Holcomb says after concerns arose about the deal's repercussions, he's ordered his staff to explore other paths. Are these moves by Governor Holcomb a tacit rebuke of former Governor Mike Pence? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Ann Delaney, is this Eric Holcomb putting his stamp on the office right out of the gate? I think it's Eric Holcomb being governor, in sharp contrast to Mike Pence. I mean, there was a complete vacuum of leadership under Pence. The one thing that he did was the HIP 2.0, and that was a good thing. And that was the only thing of any significance he did. And you can see that because of all of these things hanging. East Chicago's a disaster with the lead poisoning. He's finally stepped in to do something that should have been done, frankly, years ago. And in the Keith Cooper, uh, it, the pardon seems to be warranted and it should be done. And I never understood the deal to give the right-of-way to an Ohio company on the cell towers for Indiana. So I, I think all of those things that, that uh, Governor Holcomb has done are good things. They should have been done under the prior administration. I don't think it's necessarily a tacit rebuke. I don't think he wants to stick his finger in the eye of the vice president at the moment, but he's governing, and that's what he's supposed to be doing. Jennifer Hollowell, is this the first real look we've had at this is Eric Holcomb governor? Well, maybe for some people. I think that we've, we've already seen some of that through his um, inauguration address and when he laid out his uh, priorities for the legislative session. But, I mean, he is really getting things done. Um, you know, a lot of folks wanted to talk about, is he more like this governor or that governor? He's Governor Eric Holcomb, and he's going to look at issues and consider them carefully and decide what he thinks is the best conclusion. What I think is pretty cool about all of this, a lot of big announcements after one month. Typically we see governors and mayors have a first hundred days where they come out with some big decisions and, and we measure their progress. In one month he's already done a lot of things. Um, and in addition to that, so I mean think about 
he had a 100-day campaign, so he's very used to getting a lot done in a very short yeah, period I, I of time. I thought you were going to say he's done more in the, in the first month than Mike Pence had done in no, four years. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, thinking, right? so to Jennifer's point, um, a lot of them, I mean, we were, those of us in the room at the press conference were kind of like, oh, boy, there's one, there's two, there's three, there's four. Is he setting the bar a little too high here by dumping all this in the first month? I'm guessing he has a few more things that he's working on. Because this is a governor who has made clear that his focus is on making Indiana government more effective and provide better service for Hoosiers. We're, you know, some, whether you like it or not, he stayed away and appears willing to stay away from sort of the sweeping ideological pronouncements that almost by definition alienate 50% of your constituency and instead is focusing on, as we've discussed before, things like infrastructure, not just roads and bridges, but water infrastructure and, and supply lines that in many cases are deteriorating and, and are going to be a real problem, or fixing the Department of Revenue, or replacing, I should right. say, the Department the of Revenue system. computer system. You look at these things, it, it's, it's almost more of a model, you know, you were talking, Jennifer, about which governor he's more like. I think it's almost more of a, a big city mayor approach where you tend, when you're in that role, you don't really wear the R or the D prominently on your lapel, you tend to deal with problems as they arise. Let's fix some streets, let's fix some sewers, let's get rid of those potholes. That it seemingly is a model that I think he's uh, embraced, and it probably is, is the right thing for the right time. Uh, John, Eric Holcomb didn't mention Mike Pence's name, but I mean, those three big things I talked about were all things that Mike Pence had either turned down or didn't do while he was in office. I mean, was Eric Holcomb sort of subtly drawing a line between, I'm not that guy? Um, that may have crossed his mind. I tend to think that Ann's right, that he didn't want to poke his finger in the, in the vice president's eye. Um, but he did clearly draw a line, um, whether he intended to or not. And it is that line that you guys have described. It's the governing line. And I think that, um, you know, you have all these large examples, but I think you have a lot of small examples, too. For instance, I think his relations with the General Assembly are very good. He's got a team up there on the third floor. They're working very hard. They're communicating about legislation and what the priorities on the second floor are versus what they are on the third, and they're trying to work things out before it gets to a head. Uh, I think that's, you know, something you won't normally, won't see, and there will be some eruptions, but I think um, for somebody in his first term who's 30 days in, that's pretty remarkable. And another thing about, you know, I saw him at at an Association of Indiana Counties meeting last week, and uh, he came in, he worked the room, he went down the middle aisle and shook every hand, gave a speech that, that um, you know, wasn't uh, hailfire and, and brimstone. It was, here's what we're trying to do, and we're trying to help you out, and here's how we can do it. And if you need something, let us know. And then he shook every hand on the way back out of the room. He likes being governor, and yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. Well, and I think that's important as well. And, and he's, more, he's approachable, mm-hmm. so that, that's a plus for him. I just want to see a little bit more in the way of vision. I think it's fine to make it run like a big city, but I want to see something significant like expanded preschool, okay? Not not the little nonsense that he band-aid that he gave and not the expansion of vouchers that they snuck into that, but a real expansion of preschool. And I want K through 12 funding and I want an infrastructure program that is funded by okay, the I think well, I, three I think words I would just say issues over ideology. Yeah. That's what I think we have here. I well, think there's maybe. plenty of time for more reforms, bigger, bolder things. But, you know, you were critical of his inaugural address that there wasn't enough kind of 
flowery rhetoric right. or vision no, it wasn't or whatever. The flowery rhetoric. But, it was but the that was, that was that part was of what that was part of your uh, criticism was that it was very nuts and bolts and boring. And yeah. I was thinking also about Mayor Ballard. I worked for Mayor Ballard. He was criticized a lot in his first term for being just nuts and bolts. Um, and people didn't like his speeches, or they were always asking about this. Well, guess what? People want governors and mayors yeah. who get things done, yeah, and think, he was incredibly successful and got reelected I think the, handily. So well, I, I think, think, the, I think the that this is a great path, and I also think that Governor Holcomb has a lot of time left for a yeah. lot of He doesn't things. have a lot of time left in the legislature to get the stuff done, number one. And number two is there's the difference between being a mayor and being a governor. And I don't care if he has the flowery rhetoric. We have had enough governors that really needed speech classes a lot younger in their lives. I don't care about that. I care about the substance of it. I want to see a vision for what he wants the state to be, not just having the trains run on time, but what kind of trains we're going to have, whether we're going to have trains, all of those kinds of things I'm looking for for him. Well, and I, I, think, seen this. I think the smartest thing that Eric Holcomb did in his press conference was not take sides in the IU-Purdue basketball game last night. <laughs> the House Public Policy Committee heard testimony this week on a bill to amend Indiana's informed consent for abortion language. In addition, some doctors support, but others call scientifically unsound. The bill would mandate abortion providers tell their patients that medication-induced abortions could be reversed. But Indianapolis OBGYN Catherine McHugh says there have been no medically recognized studies regarding medication abortion reversals. It is a medication, and drugs have side effects. So by offering this medication, we not only offer potentially false hope for this woman, but we also ask her to take on the additional risks of an unnecessary medication. So in closing, my request to you is simple. Please do not confuse a medical gamble with vetted scientific data. In favor of the bill, Christina Francis is a Fort Wayne OBGYN and part of the Abortion Pill Reversal Network, a hotline for women seeking to reverse their medication-induced abortions. She says there have been only 300 successful reversals in 11 years, but says that's because not enough women know about the procedure. Women aren't being told that this is an option, and so if they find the network, they are doing it on their own. As a physician and a surgeon, informed consent is an important part of what I do every day. Before I give any of my patients a treatment or perform any kind of procedure, I fully inform them of the risks, benefits, and alternatives to what I'm offering them. The committee did not take a vote on the bill. Jennifer Hollowell, we have some doctors touting the abortion reversal drugs benefits while others say it's untested, unproven. Considering that disagreement, should this bill just not go forward? Well, I think this is exactly how the legislative process works and how we want it to work. Um, you know, hundreds of bills are proposed. There are differing opinions on both sides, and we go through the process. So this bill went to committee. They heard from experts, doctors on both sides, public comment. Everyone has a chance to weigh in, and legislators hear that and allow that to inform their decisions and then decide whether or not they want to vote it to the to the full house uh, in this case or to um, pull it back, potentially amend it, or not take it forward. So um, I think that it's working its way through the process, and this is how the process should work. Do you expect this bill to go through? I hope not. I mean, the legislature has no more business intruding itself into a doctor-patient relationship. I mean, they've already completely screwed up educational testing in this state. And now they want to come in there and tell doctors what they ought to be communicating to their patients. And, you know, I, I can't venture an opinion as to whether it's scientifically correct or not correct. 
But the fact of the matter is the legislature has no business doing this. And this is done for pure ideological reasons as a way to harass women who have made a choice to have an abortion. And I thought we were supposed to stay away from social issues this session of the General Assembly. And if that's commitments there, then this should not go forward. To that point, we'd heard some rumblings around the State House for the first few weeks of the session that, that the leadership was really trying to tamp down on the so-called social issues that always crop up in any legislative session. And then in one week, we had two gun regulation bills. We had this abortion bill pop up. Were you a little surprised to see some of this stuff? Um, not really, because you have to balance here if you're in leadership. If, if you're Speaker Bosma or if you're President Pro Tem Long, um, you know, you have a lot of, as Jennifer said, you have a lot of legislation to consider, and you don't want to have people who are in favor of the, these bills in your caucus um, rebel. They want an opportunity to have some of these things heard, and so they, they will push for that. And so I think this is probably uh, a chance for that to happen um, and, and to see where it goes. We'll see if it gets a vote. We, we saw other abortion bills obviously uh, proposed, uh, the total abortion ban, mm -hmm. one that would force a woman to, to view the ultrasound and listen to the fetal heartbeat if possible. Um, this obviously doesn't go quite as far as either of those. Because of that, do you expect this is the sort of le legislation that will get through with relative ease? Uh, it may be that this was a, because this is less strident or less, uh, some would say, say uh, onerous than some of the others. That's probably why it is serving as something, as John suggested. I don't think he used the term pressure valve, but to a, in a, to a certain extent. Went through my mind. That's, that's what this, uh, leave, me, leave it to me to go for the there cliche, even if you won't. <laughs> and that's what I think we're seeing here when some of these bills, and why we're maybe not seeing the ones that, again, might be seen as more onerous. Um, but it, on this one, you know, there's, you could debate the issue, and clearly that's where a lot of the debate was on the medical aspects of this. How does it affect the fetus? Is it, is it an actual proven method of reversal or not? But the bigger issue, it seems to me, and one that probably will, will ultimately spell defeat for this bill is the notion of the intrusion into the doctor-patient relationship. Because if you start telling physicians uh, using social policy through that well, mechanism. Well, I was that. just going to well, say, well, we're already doing that. But we don't tell physicians, for instance, that they, are, they don't have a checklist that say, if your patient weighs between this amount of weight and this amount of weight, you have to tell this person, show them a piece of chocolate cake, and then show them you know, a corpse or something that'll, and say, this come is... come next. I mean, or the same with smoking and alcohol. We generally will say physicians know what they're talking about. They know the more than the legislature. The medical community knows about. And frankly, a lot of the things about what physicians do and don't do with disclosure are governed by tort law yeah. Uh, yeah. anyway, not by, by statute. So I think there ultimately will be, once the pressure is released, there will be a return to probably the more court Let, issues. Let's hope so. Democratic U.S. Senator Joe Donnelly this week voted against three Trump nominees, and Republicans are now on the attack. Senator Donnelly cast votes against Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price. On DeVos, Donnelly expressed concerns about her lack of commitment to public education. On Sessions, he cited what he calls a wide range of opposition to the nomination from civil rights advocates. And on Price, Donnelly says he's led the charge to privatize Medicare, which the Hoosier Democrat strongly opposes. New state Republican Party Chair Kyle Huffer immediately went on the offensive. In a statement, he said Donnelly ignored the will of Hoosier voters and embraced a far-left ideology. In an email to supporters, Huffer announced the creation of the Defeat Donnelly Fund. Huffer also pressed Donnelly to vote in favor of President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. The National Senate GOP's campaign arm is running ads in the state to push Donnelly into supporting Trump's nominee. So far, Donnelly has only said he'll review and consider Gorsuch's record and qualifications. 
John Katzenberger, will Joe Donnelly vote against President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court? You know, I, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but I do know this. Um, you know, he's had uh, uh, being, being attacked already. I mean, moments after uh, Gorsuch was announced, there was an email from the RSC, the Republican Senate Committee, uh, saying he better vote for the, the um, uh, candidate here. And the campaign that's going on and the millions of dollars that are being spent in states like this uh, clearly are an attempt to sway him in a political campaign type of a way. Uh, I think that's pretty hypocritical considering what happened in the year running up to now. Um, the Republicans did not give a hearing to the previously nominated person, and now they expect everybody to fall in line and do that. Um, he's going to have a lot of pressure on him, but I'm confident that he'll do exactly what he did with, with Merrick Garland. He'll interview uh, the, the candidate. He'll listen to the testimony if and when there is a hearing on him, and uh, he'll make a vote. But uh, I, I think the campaigns are a little hypocritical right now. John, four Trump, four Trump nominees that Donnelly has voted against, do you think Gorsuch for the Supreme Court will be another one? Not necessarily. Again, there's a maverick streak, uh, and it's something I think that, that Joe Donnelly has nurtured even during the Obama administration, I remember sitting around in the same studio talking about, gee, what will be the fallout because he went against the Obama administration, against the White House. He has shown a willingness to not necessarily always toe the party line. And I think there's some credibility in, in politicians of, of either stripe who are willing to call him as they see him on individual votes because certainly there are a lot of Democrats who are just voting against every Trump nominee. And certainly there are Republicans who are voting for every Trump nominee without any, it doesn't even matter. You yeah. know, d right. Don't bother with right. me with the name or the facts. Just, just tell no. me yes. Right. And, and I think in the end, especially in this highly charged atmosphere where we don't know how popular Donald Trump will be a year from now, who's to say? That actually calling, using your conscience to, to be your guide on these votes is probably a pretty smart way to approach how it. How much do you think 2018 will be in Joe Donnelly's mind when he's considering how he'll vote on the Supreme Court nominee? Well, I don't think it's in his mind right now, voting against all of these uh, different candidates. You know, Obama lost Indiana badly, and Senator Donnelly voted for all of his cabinet appointments. And President Trump won Indiana by 19 points, and he's clearly voting against his selections. That's not what Hoosiers want. So he's out of step with Hoosier voters already on these issues. And I don't know what he'll do on the Supreme Court nominee, but I know that these, all of these things are going to have big consequences next year. And I also think that it's worth noting how quickly out of the gate the new Republican chairman, Kyle Hupfer, is taking the lead on this. And I think that there's a lot more to come. You know, I don't know how Joe Donnelly is going to vote on the Supreme Court nomination. He's going to let the process go forward in sharp contrast to what the Republicans did with uh, President Obama's last no uh, nomination. The more interesting question to me is Todd Young. You have a clearly unqualified person for Secretary of Education who doesn't believe in public education, is not familiar with the programs. You have an attorney general who's anti-civil rights, and you have a HEW secretary who wants to disband Medicare. And yet How did he out, vote for all three of those? But Jennifer points out that, I mean, if, if, if this is a state where Trump won by such a large margin, wouldn't that suggest that Hoosiers Past are behind tense. these people? Past tense. Elections have Past consequences. Tense. People voted we'll see for where this. we are in 2018 because that person who's in the White House now is not going to be popular if he's even in the White House in 2018. Well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should Joe Donnelly vote against President Trump's Supreme Court nominee? A, yes, 
and B, no. Last week's question, should lawmakers raise the age to legally buy cigarettes from 18 to 21? 64% say yes, they should. 36% say no, they shouldn't. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. House Democrats unveiled their road funding plan this week, billing it no new taxes, and to pay for it, Dems want to halt future tax cuts. The House Republican Roads Plan uses fuel tax increases, new fees, and tolling. The House Democrats' plan seeks to generate at least $800 million a year without those methods. Instead, House Minority Leader Scott Pilath says his caucus's plan would pull the money out of corporate taxes, halting cuts that are scheduled to take place in the next couple of years. He says the state already has a great business tax climate and that that will continue even if the ongoing cuts are halted. House Speaker Brian Bosma says to halt the corporate tax cuts would be misguided. He says the ongoing cuts are what's causing employers to come to Indiana. The Democratic proposal also relies on using annual state agency budget cuts called reversions, though the plan estimates those cuts in larger amounts than the state has seen in recent years. John Schwannis, is this a short-term solution for a long-term issue? I'm going to add a couple letters. It's a shorter-term <laughs> solution to a longer-term problem. I mean, the, the Republican proposal is designed to address in a, in a fairly defined way uh, how, to, how to deal with our aging roads and bridges for the next 20 years. Well, that's a good start, but we're going to have more and more problems as our state grows and as our transportation needs grow. So we'll stipulate it's, there's no end in sight to the problem at hand. Um, and is this, a, in terms of, I mean, if you just line the two programs up, by definition, this is a shorter-term program because it relies on, on, to a large extent, one-time sources in yeah. terms of, for instance, dipping into uh, the, trust the, the, the trust funds and, and then the reversion in terms of shrinking the, the whole overall state surplus down to, what, $1.3 billion as opposed to $2 billion. So, so, I mean, that's not a, an endless well, uh, how deep the, uh, the, the surplus right. goes. And then the, the other issue, again, the reversions that are built into it in terms of waste reduction and so forth would surpass what, uh, what we've seen historically. So anytime anybody says we can do this with, with waste reduction, you've got to wonder. John Katzenberger, did these numbers add up to you? Nope. Uh, they've got a, a big problem uh, that they still have to solve. Um, you know, when they, when they decided to make all of the gasoline tax, the sales tax on gasoline go to the roads program, that opens a pretty big hole in the budget. Um, you know, they have a number of scheduled tax decreases that are in, in play right now. Uh, they're going to have to look pretty hard at that. Um, they have an anticipation of an increase in revenue this year, but that's not a sure thing. Uh, and really, uh, if they don't find a way to change the funding formula, um, they're going to be looking at flat funding for uh, important programs, including education uh, and possibly Medicaid. And with uncertainty around the Medicaid program right now, um, you're going to want every dollar you've got in reserve because uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the federal government. Democrats obviously don't propose this plan thinking the Republicans will just vote for all of it. But they've already seen a part of it get adopted by the Republicans. Right. The, the Two days later, the House Republicans... Uh, changed their road funding plan to move all of the sales tax right. on gasoline over right. to roads. Is that in and of itself a win for the Democrats? Oh, I think so, and I think it's it's a step in the right direction. The problem from a point of view, when you're talking about long-term funding, when you have it only on the gas t gas tax or the sales tax on gasoline, you have to remember those terrible Democratic ideas about fuel efficiency and what that has meant to the overall 
uh, price, but the uh, income from the gasoline taxes. So it, it, bonding has got to figure in this. It has to. And we have to get serious about that, and the corporate tax phase-out has got to stop because there's not enough money in the coffers to do that and to do anything meaningful in education or infrastructure. That's perhaps the biggest piece of the Democratic plan, which is to halt the corporate tax cuts, not raise them, just simply not lower them any further than they are right now. When you're telling the average Hoosier, we need to take more money from you to pay for your roads, which everybody seems to be doing at this point, is it also fair to then tell them, but don't worry, those guys won't, we won't be asking them to... to, to We'll ask them for less. Yeah, we'll ask them for less. Is, it, is that a fair well, they'll, trade? They'll be paying for roads as well. But the, what we're talking about is rolling back something that's already been passed, that's already been uh, applauded. We have created such a business-friendly climate in the state, which is why we have weathered some rough years and why we are now in great shape. And we've had such, we've had such successful economic development efforts. We have jobs coming to the state. And it's not time to turn back the clock on those things. Yeah. So I think that the, the Democrat plan is risky. I certainly can't speak to it as well as John did on some of those um, levels. But what it does certainly is put our AAA credit rating at, at risk and other things. So I think it's, uh, I, don't I don't think, think it's going that far. credit rating at all. And well, the other, spending the other down, problem the, spending about down the surplus. Spending down the surplus to a billion dollars might have a minuscule impact on the uh, credit rating. But more importantly, yeah, maybe there are some jobs coming here, but the income continues to go down. Our ranking in the country has, continues to decrease under the Republicans. And as Mitch Daniels said, the only measure of success of a governor is whether or not the income to people goes up. It is not. Well, finally, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Eric Holcomb has been in office one month. Starting with Ann Delaney, what grade would you give Governor Holcomb so far? I'd give him a B, a solid B, if he showed some vision on, on K-12 through 12, uh, education and preschool and infrastructure. I'd probably get it all the way up to a B+. Plus. <laughs> wow, A++++? Plus, plus, plus? Is that possible? No. Oh, A+, plus then. <laughs> That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.